Hey, Glenn from Form 55 here. Welcome to the second episode of our podcast where I talk to the creative people behind the most interesting projects, products and ideas to find out more about the creative process behind them. Monument Valley is an award-winning puzzle game for iOS and Android that's been downloaded and played more than 30 million times, has inspired countless pieces of fan art and was played by a fictional president in the House of Cards. Today I'm really happy to have a chat with Dan Gray, who's the head of studio at Us Two Games in London, about Monument Valley 2, the much-awaited sequel. Welcome to the Forum 55 podcast, Dan. Cool. Thanks for having me, man. You've, you've caught me in the, the rare day that I'm actually back in the studio after lunch. That was going to be literally my first topic is how, I mean, how intense, how do you even go about launching a game like this across the globe? And how did you keep it a secret for this long? For this long? I know, that's, that's the hardest bit. Like the, the secret bit is genuinely the hardest bit because, you know, I've been, I've been working in games specifically for like 10 years now, big, big companies, small companies. But usually what happens is, you, you know, you announce something and then it's all about the hype. You get on the hype train for the, you know, six, eight months before something comes out. And then those times where you're in the studio and you're there late at night and you're tearing your hair out and you're wondering whether it's all worth it. Like the things that end up keep you going are like seeing videos on the internet or seeing people on Twitter talk about how excited they are. Now, the worst thing about keeping this a secret is we didn't get any of that. Like any of that really cool feedback, none of it. I had to keep the whole thing a secret. It's been hard. It's genuinely the hardest project I've ever worked on. Yeah. I mean, where do you find, because that's sort of part of the motivation as well, isn't it? Sort of seeing the excitement uh, online and on social media and people that you talk to, where, how do you still motivate the team to, to keep going with a project when you're not getting any feedback at the, in the early stages? It's, it's funny like I remember when we first decided we were going to come back and make a sequel I told the team and I told Apple I was like listen guys this is going to be the most anticipated mobile game of all time like that's what we're going to make we're genuinely going to make that and then over the course of time it turned out being that we made the least anticipated mobile game of all time because no one actually knew it was coming yet so it's, it's kind of the opposite of what I promised everybody it just kind of just dropped on stage during WWDC that was a pretty pretty nice little teaser uh, uh, for our release, though. <laughs> I know, like, don't get me wrong, it's, it's all been worth it. Like, it's all been massively worth it. And the amount of stuff we've done in the last four weeks has been crazy. But yeah, as, and like, as you said, it's hard to... <laughs> It's hard to keep everyone motivated because you say these things, like you say reasons why you want to make a certain game. So like for us, we wanted to make a game that people would enjoy, even if they've never played a game before. And you tell yourselves that and you have meetings and you know these are principles you're trying to hold yourself towards. But you don't actually know whether you've done it or not until you put it in people's hands. So like the, the payoff, you know, we released the game 5th of June now, so it's been just over a month. The payoff you get when you do some of the public events or like podcasts like this and you get people speaking to you afterwards, you're like, God, did we actually, like, do we really do it? Is that the thing that we managed to do? Usually, you know, much earlier, but yeah, the painstaking nature of making a secret, a secret sequel is that we didn't actually know until, you know, the week of launch. So I should probably do a little spoiler alert before I get into anything that for people that haven't played the game yet, we will probably talk about some things that are going to happen in the game. So if you haven't played it, I recommend you play it first and then you come back to this. 
So Monument Valley 2 follows a mother-daughter narrative as they explore this, this world that Ida, the character from the first game, helped create. And you play as both the mother and the daughter as they sort the the daughter learns how to get around this world and then has to go on her own journey um yeah maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how did you yeah how did you get to this this idea of having the mother and the daughter play it's probably a very rare duo that you see in gaming these days yeah i mean like the best way we best way we like to describe it is it's the it's the growing relationship between a mother and her child. So it's how that relationship changes over time. Um, and I guess when we think about where we ended up kind of settling on that as a goal, we started working on the game about February of last year and we were prototyping a whole bunch of different ideas whilst at the same time having conversations on a regular basis as a team about storylines and characters that we thought were underrepresented within within video games. And one of those, um, one of those conversations ended up revolving around, uh, motherhood. Cause usually, you know, there's usually hardly any mothers in games whatsoever. And when they are, when they are present, they're usually seen as some kind of side character or, you know, some kind of escort quest or something to protect because mothers are vulnerable things that are summarized by the fact that they're, they're, they're only sort of value is the fact they have a child. Now that, that's obviously complete rubbish. So like for us, we wanted to try and tell the story of a mother who, yes, she had to bring up her child to be, to be an adult in this world, but she has hobbies. She likes to play the flute. She, she's one of the original architects of this world. She, she builds this sacred geometry that powers all this architecture that you see in Monument Valley 1 and Monument Valley 2. Like she has a lot of depth to her character and kind of just throwing that on its head and saying, you know, Monument Valley 1 and Monument Valley 2, they're not games about, you know, walls of text or cutscenes or, you know, what we refer to as like quite heavy handed storytelling. So if we can manage to tell the story of motherhood in 90 minutes with characters that have no faces, then you kind of have no excuse if you have, uh, you know, bigger teams and, and longer stories to actually tell. So in our own way, just trying to kind of branch out and expand on what video games can can actually be i think you've done a great job and also pointing out there that they don't have faces and there's no dialogue but you still tell uh really there's a strong narrative throughout the game i mean there's some text that supports each cutscene at the end of the game but that's not really related necessarily to their journey together but they're like sort of overarching ideas yeah, like if you think about the design of the story, um, I mean, there's a reason why, you know, there'll be people like yourself who are interested in design, who have an interest in this as a game. There'll be the, you know, more kind of hardcore indie gamers who also like Monument Valley. But then also there's the people who, you know, they might not ever see our game on iTunes. They might not, you know, listen to this podcast or go on many websites and they don't consider themselves to be gamers whatsoever. They, you know, they install Facebook and that probably probably it, not even like Instagram or Twitter on there. And, you know, they never do, they never do anything else. So it's about how we make a story that appeals to those people as well. Yeah. And that's, that's just mostly a sense of, we need to put the information out there if you want to delve deeper into it. Right. So as you said, those, those snippets of kind of like poetic text that happens at the end of some chapters, but also if you want to skip all that stuff and you don't care, you can do, we're not going to put a blocker in your face and say, if you don't understand the story, you can't continue. So it needs to operate on a whole spectrum of different players. Was there things that you learned in the first one that were like, that clearly influenced the second one to help you improve? I've, I mean, I might be biased, but the first one I thought was 
pretty perfect in my opinion so to make the second one even better um like where do you where do you start to analyze the first one to lead you into the next game i think one telling thing that i thought um when we saw people's reaction from Monument Valley 1 was, again, this is kind of a bit of a spoiler if nobody's played Monument Valley 1, but it's been out for like, you know, three years now, so I'm going to have to do it. But there's a part where, um, there's a part where the totem, the totem character that you meet um, kind of descends into the ocean. And the amount of reaction we had from players, like people sharing images and videos of that between themselves, we're like, wow, we can actually have an impact on people with very little very little story or dialogue or anything. We did that in the first game. And I think you can tell that with the second game now, it's, it's slightly more narrative driven than the first one. Like, and not in that heavy handed way we talked about, but we really took that idea of how we can make you feel in an elegant and kind of simplistic way and really kind of drove it home over a slightly longer game with kind of a more character focus. So that's one of the things we took on board. Also just a lot more user testing again just like testing with hundreds of people. And I think this is a good bridge for like things like your podcast and your audience is that for anyone who doesn't know about us too, it's predominantly been like a design and development studio for like client work. And it's not been born out of just video games. So we've got, we're in a very unique situation where we kind of straddle a number of different industries. And I'd say the emphasis on user testing is something we took from the, the wider company. The idea that, you know, you can't be, you're not the type of person who's going to fail a, a banking application. Like you can't, you know, there's no, you're not doing it right. There's no, you're not good enough. Like you need to create something that everybody can, not necessarily enjoy, but everybody can understand. Those same principles go for us and making a game. It just happens to be that what we make is entertainment. So we took the same principles of user testing and how we record that and share that and learn from it. Um, and actually just applied it to interactive experiences as, as entertainment. So it's kind of a bit of a unique take on things. When I've been at, say, Microsoft, for example, or, or I was at Hello Games uh, before this, you'd very much just test with your mates and like other developers. So it's hardly surprising that at the end of that, you get a game that is really well liked by other developers and other gamers, but not that much beyond that. So again, just an emphasis of trying to broaden the appeal of what video games are. Like we don't really have a set kind of like vision statement for us two games. But one thing I've settled on internally in my own head is that I really want us to change, change people's perceptions of games and the people that play them. Like those, those two elements are massively important to us. Yeah. I think, I think you're doing that without a doubt. And before I get onto the team that's behind uh, a game like this, the point of user testing is really interesting. How do you, how varied are the, people you pick for these tests do you go like across the board different age groups different locations or do you just pick anyone who's sort of walking past the office <laughs> i'm trying to think trying to think of, of some good examples to show you the breadth of stuff so probably anything from uh the cafe underneath our studio to John, who was the lead designer on the game, he took it to his mother's book club in Cornwall and tested it amongst them. So again, people's kids, uh, yeah, really trying to get that kind of breadth of people. The kids one is, is actually an interesting one because the game's really popular with kids because it doesn't have time pressure. It doesn't, it's, it's quite relaxing and it's a game that parents, you know, don't mind their kids actually playing. But that was never intended for the first game. Like, I'd love to sit here and say, oh, aren't we so good? We designed a game that had 
such a broad appeal, but it really wasn't. Like we made Monument Valley One to be a game for people who were interested in design and interesting puzzles. The kids thing came across just by accident between Monument Valley One and Monument Valley Two. So tell us a little bit about the the people that are behind the game like this. I think I read somewhere you've got about twenty people now in the London office. Is that roughly correct? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really changed over time. So I, I mentioned before that you know we're part of um, the wider company, us two, and they have you know a studio in London and one in Malmo and and one in Sydney um, and one in New York as well. But my team, who only concentrates on games, there's actually no crossover between those teams. So I, I have, including myself, uh, 20 people, and we only focus on the games and, and vice versa. But November 2015, is that what it was? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. In fact, it was only November last year that we moved into our own studio. So yeah, only a matter of months ago, actually, we moved into our own studio in South London and kind of renovated this space to be everything that we wanted creative space to be, all the kind of room and shoved everyone on laptops. Like no one's in a fixed position, give people the kind of like different modes of thinking. We have a, like a soundproof room and like a big soft area and everyone's desks move and really made it into a kind of like a little atrium of thought and madness. But I mean, yeah, yeah, the the people have changed a lot over that course of time. We were, as I said, we were eight people when we made Monument Valley. And since we kind of like split off into a different studio, we've had to hire, you know, a lot more support staff as well. So we've got a studio manager and a financial controller and everything. But I'd say when it comes to the actual development team, we're very, we're very cross-discipline. And that's, that's kind of intended. So we want all of our programmers to be creative in the way that they, you know, they edit things. We want our artists to be able to go into our game engine and, and create the shaders themselves so that they can, you know, their vision can be truly represented in the thing that we make. Um, we want the level designers to do a first pass on the visuals for a level so that they can kind of convey to the artists exactly what they were thinking when they designed a puzzle a certain way. Like it's really important to us that, you know, not that everybody can do everything, but everybody understands everything so that we're all on the same page. Like I'd like to hope people play Monument Valley one and Monument Valley two, and they see it as a kind of, you know, consistent vision for what it's trying to achieve. And I think that's due to how kind of cross-discipline people are. So at which point I, I think what one thing that I noticed from one to two is f- personally, I think the music was even more, I, I don't know, in tune with the game. It like, I, I, I felt my, cause I, I played it only on my commute. So I was always in the train and there was lots of people around me and I was like zoned into the game. And I just felt the music was like really calming and really helped me through the, you know, just, I, I don't know. I think it helped the story, but also helped me play the game more. At which point of the, the process, the, the creative process, does music come into play? This was a really interesting one. I'm really glad you played with headphones because the number of people who play mobile games without listening to the audio is like, as somebody who makes stuff, you're like, God, we put so much effort into this. I think it's just because like, as you know, most mobile games, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a catch 22. It's like not many people listen on their headphones. So people don't put effort into the audio. And then because people don't put effort into the audio, people don't bother listening to it. So I mean, this time we even went through the measure of, um, it only happens once when you first launch the game. It says, you know, Monument Valley 2 is best played with headphones. And it never comes up again like after the first time. But it was really important that people felt the whole of the experience. As you said, it adds so much to it. 
and Todd Baker, who did the audio for this, did not did an absolute kind of like outstanding job of seeing this through. But when you talk about what stage we did, this this is very uncommon. But we actually got Todd involved right from the beginning, and we, in the same way that you do concept art. We wanted to do concept audio. So we got, we got Todd in. Um, Todd's a freelancer that we use to do the audio. And we said to him, here is Monument Valley 1. He, he's played it. He likes it. He understands the team. We worked with him on Land's End, which was our VR game as well. So he understood how we worked. And we said, okay, go and create an album of music of you taking the world of Monument Valley and taking it in a number of different directions musically. And the funniest thing is we actually took that album, we put it on Spotify and on iTunes and stuff as like an unnamed album. So, so really from, I think it was March last year, anybody could have listened to the music from... <laughs> it's crazy, you know, just keeping things a secret for no reason. Um, so yeah, he's, he was involved from the very, very beginning because, you know, when we talk about this kind of like symbiosis of disciplines that happens if you want to make a, a coherent vision, then audio is massively part of that. You can't just turn around with your visuals eight weeks before launch and say, can you put sounds on it? Because it's, it's obviously going to sound fragmented and terrible. So yeah, just trying to get him involved as, as soon as possible. I'm actually in the process of trying to, trying to get him to join us full time. I keep trying to He's so attached to the freelance life that I need to say, no, listen, Todd, just stay, stay with us because your work was so good. You mentioned Land's End there briefly. With the constantly falling prices of VR equipment, where do you see the future of gaming and VR heading? I'm, I'm, I keep flip-flopping on this all the time because you can't really talk about VR without talking about AR stuff at the same time and the pros and cons of each kind of uh, way of doing things in terms of that technology. Now VR has been, it's been good. It's been good for us because everybody has a phone. I mean, that, as a, I'm talking mobile VR here as opposed to desktop VR. VR is great for an all encompassing experience, you know, that really cuts you off from the outside world. But on the other hand, it's, it's a high friction platform, even mobile VR. You know, there's a reason why mobile gaming really took off. And that's because you can stand, you know, between tube stops and pull your phone out just out of your pocket with one hand and play something for two minutes. You can't do that by pulling a headset out of your bag and then attaching it and then putting it on your head and cutting. You can't do it. The friction is there and friction is like king with most kind of like mainstream experiences. So then you go, okay, what's happening with AR? And you look at, you know, Apple's AR kit uh, announcement at WWDC last month as well. And you think, wow, okay, it might not be an all encompassing experience, but anybody can pull this phone out of their pocket on this tube and look at the floor with their phone. And there might be a creature walking around on the cheap floor. Like they don't need to attach anything else or do anything else to experience the technology. Maybe we'll see kind of like a fragmentation of that where I also think it's going to be much harder to design games for AR. It's going to be much easier to design game games for, for VR. So maybe they'll both coexist over the course of the next five years. I personally would, would definitely see AR as being more successful to a mainstream audience just because of that, that kind of like friction aspect of things. Um, and we want to look at both. We want to carry on looking at both this year anyway. That leads me on to my closing question, which would be like, can you, can you at least hint at what's, what's next for us two? I mean, is there anything in the pipeline? Obviously, judging by your, your past secrecy, even if you were working on something, you wouldn't tell us. But maybe you can at least hint at where you're going. I <laughs> know. Oh, first off, like half, half the team's on vacation at the minute as well. Everyone's like taking, taking well-earned breaks. I mean, where we're at right now is um, we're not thinking about Monument Valley stuff right now um, just because we need to get a little bit of headspace and, 
and actually come back to that kind of thing with a fresh way of thinking. But yeah, we are prototyping kind of ideas at the moment. Some of those things aren't even ideas. Some of those, like we're, we're really relaxed with the way that we think about things. So someone might go away for two weeks and just have a research project and it might be, okay, here's quite a complicated genre that is, that is popular within uh, kind of core gamers right now. How could we take the great things about that genre and distill them down to a mainstream audience so they can also experience those great things? It might just be a research project and not a game that you can play. So we're very much in that kind of blue skies thinking mode at the minute of, of saying how, again, how are we going to bring what's great about video games to the masses without treating them like idiots? So yeah, a whole bunch of things on the table at the moment. We probably won't even take something into production until the end of this year. On that note, uh, thank you very much for your time, Dan Gray. Cool. Th thanks a lot for having me, mate. Find out more about Monument Valley and see some behind the scenes pictures from the US2 offices in London on farm55.com.